Chapter 13, Trading Secrets The opening quote for this chapter is from St. John of the Cross. If a man wishes to be sure of the road he treads on, he must close his eyes and walk in the dark. Almost 20 years have passed since I first became certain that TM was my one thing. But despite the spiritual knowledge I had received, I still had trouble relating its tenets to the daily experience of being me. Having found self-inquiry, I felt that I had discovered a great insight that would be a benefit to others. So I began to speak about it in the local community as the self-referral communications process, a spiritual communications process where authentic communication rested on our ability to be self-referral regarding the content of experience rather than object referral with respect to our beliefs, expectations, and the opinions of others. I started with public talks and later approached a few business owners to offer seminars, which then led to consulting engagements. For many, the information seemed compelling because they liked the sense of empowerment that it afforded, but it also served to challenge their beliefs. In an effort to make the subject matter accessible to them, I pointed out that I was merely describing the process of thinking and feeling that was natural to our waking experience in the same way that the practice of TM uses them to notice the mantra. Like that, I had simply applied that process to one's daily experience with the eyes open. I was not adding anything new, just doing what I had always done, only now with mindfulness. Were it not for my years of meditation that had taught me to notice the faint impulse of the mantra, which the practice of TM refers to as a faint feeling, I may not have been able to appreciate the content of my experience as being a feeling, now perceptible as the wake or flow created through its movement in consciousness. It is because of this movement that the wise describe life as a flow, which is best known by our feeling of it. In this sense, however, feeling does not refer to the quality of a mood or emotion, but has more to do with the sensation one might feel when sliding their hands across the surface of something, as opposed to simply holding it. Like that, feeling is the sensing of a progressive sequences of touches that, when linked together, becomes our experience of the flow of life. Expanding on this analogy, Thoughts are like snapshots that have been removed from the flow, frozen in the mind, so that they can be examined through the process of thinking. But a thought is not the thing it refers to any more than is a belief. Each is merely a record of some moment that has already gone by. Before I became aware of this distinction, my life had been awash in tidal waves of past concepts and their records of previous meaning that served to propel me towards my idea of safety. It wasn't until I took the time to observe how I made meaning that I began to understand how safety resided in my ability to accept the moment and in nothing else. Now encouraged to be more aware, I developed practices to notice those habits that pushed me out of the moment. One was to record how many times during the day I thought about the money that remained in my account, or I would count how many times my idea of safety involved the fee I would receive from the project I was working on and I paid attention to how many times I looked in the mirror, spoke or behaved to solicit validation from others. In all of it, the need to garner safety was dominant, but regardless of the fleeting comfort those efforts provided, my mind could not find rest. Instead, it would run from what I could know now into the realm of belief, even though the comfort found there never, not even once, proved accurate. 
For some as yet inexplicable reason, my mind continued to say no to the present moment as it sought safety in a promised future even though none was ever found there. Because of my mistaken beliefs, I could see how fear had long been the basis of my life. This was why I always sought to control situations by saying no to everything that didn't immediately conform to what I believed was needed to be safe. It was not that I consciously waited to negate impulses. It was an unconscious response that made the quality of my mind feel negative. Sadly, as I watched my judgmental nature reveal itself, I now understood why my mind was a minefield of past beliefs that had nothing to do with the present. Nonetheless, it was through that field of distortion that new impulses must pass before they could be known. Talk about your rocky terrain. But even with these insights, I was unable to transform the emotional tone of fear and depression that seemed inescapable until the day I learned to breathe it all out. Towards the end of 1989, I was introduced to a breathing practice that would change how I engaged with my thoughts and emotions yet again. My reason for incorporating this new practice was that my one thing wasn't getting the job done. While it had carried me a long way, and there was a fair degree of silence in my mind, my emotions were out of control, and I needed to move past the discord they created. When the knowledge of a yogic breathing practice showed up in the local community, it was the first time I'd heard anyone talk about the relationship between the emotions and the breath. The instructor told us that for each emotion there was a specific rhythm to the breath and that when the breathing changed, so did the emotions and vice versa because they were intrinsically linked. To illustrate this, he directed us to our own experience to notice that when we felt content, our breath was deep and even. When sad, it was irregular. If anxious, it was quick. And when afraid, we held it in. Next, he explained how this practice would purify the emotional body of its toxins, by altering those rhythms in a very safe and specific manner. Having some sense of the relationship between the breath and the emotional tone of my life, my wife and I decided to attend the workshop. In the first session, I discovered real tangible benefit, so at the first opportunity, we dragged our kids to a five-day retreat in Connecticut to meet the founder of the practice. Arriving at the retreat a week before Christmas, we learned that the promise of child care had fallen through. My wife and I decide that I will watch the kids during the day and she in the evening. Curiously, while walking the halls of the facility while everyone else was in session, I would often find myself in the company of the founder. He was a very humorous, kind, and inquisitive man with a cheerful twinkle in his eyes. Later, I would sit in the audience during his evening talks, after which there would be music, singing, and dancing for those who wanted to participate. During the first evening, I was amazed to hear him describe point by point every insight I'd discovered about the nature of fear, doubt, guilt, past, present, and future, sometimes using the exact phrasing that had come to my mind. Without having to ask even one of my lingering questions, each one is answered in turn. Hearing him talk so openly, I was overwhelmed with gratitude that what I'd realized, albeit painfully, was his understanding as well. For the rest of the evening, I sat attentively to glean every shred of information he offered. But when the music and dancing started, my buttons really got pushed. Oh my God, people were dancing and swaying to the music by themselves. They were singing and humming along. I was embarrassed for them. They were singing songs, playing guitars, beating drums, and clanking cymbals while unabashedly hugging one another and basically appearing to have a really good time. In contrast, I'm very uncomfortable with all of this even though my wife is also swaying to the music with eyes closed and our kids are dancing with the others. I wondered to myself, why am I such a stick in the mud that I can't just sit here and let people do their thing without all this mental judgment? Why does it matter that this is so different from what I've come to expect from other retreats? 
After about 30 minutes of observing the dialogue of my mind, I tell myself to just shut the F up. I admonish myself to just sit there and make note of any judgments that come to mind and instruct myself to breathe out with each breath the discord that arises with my judgments. I sit there watching the activity of my mind like one would attend to a rebellious child while patiently and repeatedly breathing out my negativity with each exhalation. After a few minutes, I notice a change in my mind, body, and emotions. Some stillness is growing. Encouraged, I decide right then and there to practice breathing out negativity for the remainder of the retreat. At first, this seemed like a good idea, but later in the week, I find a tremendous sense of boredom from only watching my thoughts and emotions and breathing them out. I wonder, why was boredom my state of mind when I wasn't complaining? How had being negative become a way to entertain myself? Why did I use discord and drama to distract myself? After about two days, I get so good at watching that I could sense even the faintest stirrings of negativity before they surfaced and would breathe them out. Each day, my body becomes more and more relaxed. I was sleeping better and my digestion was improving as the exercise evolved into a new spiritual practice where every single breath became an intoxicating experience. It seems that somewhere along the way, I had pierced the boredom on which my mind fed for entertainment, allowing me to become drunk on the stillness of each moment, regardless of what it contained. Every thought and emotion became an excuse to breathe everything out into stillness. I managed to remain in the state for about a month after our return home. Abruptly, I make my exit the day our five-year-old son is reporting missing from his friend's house. By the time we get the phone call telling us that he was lost, he'd already been outside for an hour in sub-zero temperatures without his jacket. When my wife calls the police to report him missing and the officer asks for his description, we both break down. About 30 minutes later, there's a knock at the door. We open the door to find a man from our community that I didn't know well, asking if we might have lost something. He says that he saw our son wandering the streets and thought he would probably be better off at home, so he'd offered him a ride. When Tyler comes into the house, we hug and hold him. His body is as cold as a block of ice, and his fair skin is showing a tint of blue. We thank the man and bring our son into the house while remaining as calm as we can. I sit down on the floor with my back against the couch as Tyler sits with his back against my chest. I can feel the coldness of his body through my sweatshirt. We offer him some warm milk and a bite to eat. While eating and talking, he animatedly explains how his friend had lit a fire in the house when his mother had left to get sandwiches at the shop around the corner. When it got out of control, his friend shouted, Run for your life! Tyler had gone one way and his friend another. Soon our precious son was asleep against my chest. It was from that moment my ability to find my way into the peace and silence was gone. Several weeks later, a faint impulse begins to stir that directs me to start recruiting again. In response to the urging, I reorganize my files and start making phone calls to find out what searches might be available. While doing this, I'm mindful that the next moment might direct me elsewhere and allow myself to attune to the duty of each moment. This time, while making phone calls, I don't break down from a sense of futility, but would sometimes have a very strong sense that I needed to do a certain thing, and while on the way to do it, the feeling would fade or redirect me, and I would obey. While working to generate new business, I received a call from someone I had never spoken with before. He had been one of the founders of Convergent Technologies, who was now a board member of Ambit, a CAD company developing a new solution for logic synthesis. He had called this day to help its CEO locate a recruiter and had been referred to me. After some discussion, we come to an agreement to conduct a search for their director of logic synthesis. 
Encouraged by the opportunity, I fill the position and two more. Soon, new projects come rolling in with companies from Boston, Oregon, Texas, and the Silicon Valley. Early in 1992, my wife and I decided to build a house on some land we had purchased during our first year in Fairfield. Not wanting to go back into debt, we live as frugally as possible so that we can pay cash for the project. We don't even hire an architect. Instead, I purchase graph paper and sit at the kitchen table to design the elevations of our future home. After submitting the designs to a structural engineer for approval, we hire carpenters and begin construction. For the next year, my days consisted recruiting in the morning and working at the building site afternoons and weekends. In the summer of 93, one of my favorite people at Mentor Graphics gets promoted. While vacationing with my extended family at Lake Tahoe, he flies me in to attend a staff meeting in Wilsonville, Oregon. Sitting there in the conference room, he introduces me by saying, many of you already know Gary. He is here to help us complete our staffing requirements. Next, he goes around the room asking about the status of staffing activities from each of his managers and directors. If they have made no progress, he gives the assignment to me. If the progress is slow, he gives them a deadline after which the assignment will go to me. If the open requisition is new and they have no leads, he gives the assignment to me. I leave that afternoon with 12 retained search assignments. Back in Fairfield, we use the money to finance construction on the house so that we can get the roof on before the Iowa winter. But as fate would have it, life had other plans. On November 4th, there's a solar eclipse. It's as if someone switched off a light upon leaving a room. Mentor cancels all offers of employment, start dates, and projects. Now unable to collect the balance of the fees expected, we cannot pay the taxes owed on the money we used to build our house. 